Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Glace Chase. And so I pulled my hand away and he said, why did you stop? I said, because you didn't want me to. And with that, he just came everywhere. <laughs> that and more. But before that, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Have you been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com for a limited time, and you'll get 50% off just about any item. But that's not all. When you select one item at 50% off, you'll also receive a free sex swing. Hang your sex swing to your door and hang on tight. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping to your entire order. They're not kidding. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. Get 50% off one item when you type RISK for the offer code upon checkout. When you do, you'll get a free sex swing, free shipping, and that 50% off that one item. Just use the offer code RISK at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the average white band behind me now, although I think James Brown wrote this song, so... There's America in a nutshell right there. Uh, We are calling this week's episode Persistence, and I'll tell you goddamn why, other than the fact that the stories fit that theme. This is the 
400th episode of Risk. This is the 400th episode of our show. I will tell you something, my friends. In 2009, when I started, I was penniless. I was maxing out credit cards to get this show afloat. We were coming out with two episodes per month because I created a show that is so goddamn difficult and time-consuming and energy-draining to create. And I remember at that time thinking, fantasizing. I had the greatest fantasy that, oh my God, because I hadn't done anything in 12 years. You know, 12 years since the state had broke up, I hadn't done anything that had actually lasted and succeeded in my life. So at the time I was thinking, wow, maybe I can keep this going long enough so that one day there will be enough episodes so that a person could listen to one episode per day for a whole month. (laughs) That was the dream that maybe I could actually keep it going that long. And now we have enough episodes you could listen to one a day for well, well over a year. The best way to have the whole catalog, because places like Stitcher and iTunes, they they don't give it to you, is to go to our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk. I have to do a couple shout outs here. There's two new $25 or more patrons of ours. And they are Robin Wood Mason and Doria Nappy. Thank you so much. Robin Wood Mason and Doria Nappy for $25 or more per month over at Patreon. I'll tell you, I was very sick last week. I had about a day to get better. Now I'm back on the road. I'm in a hotel room in San Francisco. The way that the fans have been responding to the book is just so moving and inspiring to us. We're really and truly overwhelmed with gratitude right now because well i'll tell you we had a goal of selling at least two thousand books the first week we exceeded it and people have been posting pictures people have started getting it as christmas gifts you know like buying a lot of them for multiple people to give at christmas time now we did not make the new york times bestseller list next time That's for the next book. You know, what we're also quite focused on now is Amazon reviews. We're hearing a lot of rumors around the industry that if you get a lot of Amazon reviews, that really helps enormously for a book to, like, have a future, for it to, like, really get momentum and keep selling. So, review the book on Amazon and places like Goodreads and Target. Call your libraries, have them order it. Call your independent bookstores, have them order it. Keep posting stuff online, you know, on Facebook and Twitter. Take pictures of yourself with the book. Buy copies for your friends. Keep making that book more and more popular. Because what we're really hoping is that it makes the podcast more popular. Now, in a little bit... We're going to hear from the extraordinarily talented storyteller, Matt Dix. But before that, the return of someone who is in the Risk book. Oh, my gosh. She read her story when we did the book signing at Harvard Bookstore and got a standing ovation. It was so beautiful. Her story in the book is unforgettable. 
And now here's a sort of a sequel to it. She told this at the show that we did just last week in Boston. This is Tori with a story we call Grand Opening. I never liked talking about how I lost my virginity. But when I was 22 years old, I just graduated from college and I moved into my first apartment. To celebrate moving into my first apartment, my friends and I had a dinner party. And somehow at this dinner party, the conversation turned to people sharing their stories about their first time. One friend said, his kisses were like licking, like I was being licked. And by the time the sex happened, it was like he had a seizure on top of me. (laughs) Another friend described her first time as, um, I think he forgot that there was a person under him and he just kinda kept on banging and then it was over. And, she's like, and I was like, oh, so that's what sex is. Another friend described her first time as, well, if my first time was a headline, it would read, hammer, hammer, rip, bleed. Because I really didn't think that was, I knew it was gonna hurt, but I didn't think it was gonna hurt that much. And so they kept on talking about these awkward times and you know, there were times where we were laughing and there were times where we were like, oh my God. And then my friend Maria turned to me and said, so Tori, what was your first time like? My heart is pounding so bad, it's in my ears. And I clench my fists and I try so hard to make my fake laugh sound real and say, you know, it, like you guys, you know, it was awkward. It was, you know, awkward. But what I can't tell my friends is that six days before my 13th birthday, I woke up with my pink nightgown over my face. I felt hands pulling down my days of the week underwear. I was wearing Wednesday on a Sunday. And my first time was taken by my stepfather. I don't want to to know because I don't want, I'm at a point in my adulthood where I don't want to be the girl who got raped. I just want a story. I want their stories. And one of the things that makes me not tell my group of friends is that when I was in college, I did tell somebody and shared with them what had happened to me. And he said, ugh. So cliche, just another female writer who just got molested. And I never told anyone again. So the only place where I could tell this story was I was attending a rape crisis support group. And in this rape crisis support group, I, for the first time, was surrounded by women who were in relationships. I didn't know that you could be in one if that happened to you. There was this one woman who had this 
amazing aerodynamic afro. It looked like she just jumped out of the 70s. And she shared with us that she accepted a ride home from a man in her Bible study group, and he raped her. There was another woman in my group who, this amazing businesswoman, very polished, looked like she could take over the world. And she shared with us that she'd been married to her husband for 10 years, and she never told him that she was raped. And now she couldn't stand for him to touch her. And their stories made me realize that I wasn't the only one who was afraid to shower. I wasn't the only one who was over the age of 18 and afraid of the dark. I wasn't the only one who didn't feel like they deserved to be loved. But most of all, I wasn't the only one who didn't feel like they deserved to have a sex-positive experience. So when the dinner conversation starts winding down, my friend Maria reveals, I got a vibrator. You see, my first time, it was okay, but he came, I didn't. The second time, he came, I didn't. And so I went out and got a vibrator because fucking damn it, I wanted to come. And we were like, oh my God, so, and here's the thing about Maria. She was this loud, boisterous, confident, short Italian girl I met in college, changed her hair color with whatever she wanted to do, didn't shave her legs because you know what? That's my hair and I wanna keep it there. And she had this confidence that I wanted and it scared the fuck out of me at the same time. <laughs> and so a few days after the dinner party, Maria comes up to me and says, I want to apologize for the other night. And at first I didn't know what she was talking about. And she's like, I saw the flyer about the rape crisis center and I didn't know. I don't want to have this conversation with her. Hopefully my silence will just make her stop asking questions. But she keeps on, you know, apologizing. And finally she says something that I want to hear. So do you want to see it? And I'm like, what? My vibrator, do you want to see it? And it's like, well, fuck yeah, I want to see it. I've been wanting to ask this question all week. <laughs> but I, like, who I was at the time, I didn't know if I could ask the question. I didn't, you know, I didn't know if she wanted to show us. So we go up to her room, and she pulls open her drawer, and she pushes aside her socks, and there's a little square box, and she opens it up, and inside my hand she puts her pocket rocket. And then she turns it on. And at first I'm like, oh my God, this is gonna fall on my hand. She's like, oh, don't worry about it. It won't. And so she's like, it's very powerful, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then she like turns it off and she puts it away and then she hands me a pamphlet. And she's like, well, you know, you gotta figure out if you want clitoral stimulation or vaginal penetration. These are the first time I'm hearing these words. And so she's like, you know, Whenever you're ready, we can go get your vibrator. And I'm like, whatever. And so I take the pamphlet and I read it, and it takes me about a month to finally like go up to her and say, I think I wanna get a vibrator. At the time, I was like, okay, this could be a positive thing, and she got one. So we go to the female positive sex shop and Maria walks in there like we're walking into the supermarket, like, oh, I just have something else I need to get. <laughs> and I walk in, and I am confronted with a wall 
of dildos and vibrators. Every different color. I'm standing there and I am excited and horrified. I'm like, I didn't know you can make those out of glass. That goes in you. And the whole time I'm just like, I'm just kind of shocked. I'm like, holy shit. And so this small pink haired pixie cut girl comes up to us and she's like, hey, do you guys need any help? And right when I'm about to say no, Maria's like, yeah, we do. She's getting her first vibrator. <laughs> and I am like, all right. And so she's like, oh, okay, so are you, what are you into, vaginal, clitoral? And before I can say anything, Maria answers, I think she wants a little of both. <laughs> and so she goes over the spiel of what would be a great first-time vibrator, and there I am standing there like I am right now being like, oh God, all right? And so, but while I'm looking at the vibrators and she's presenting them like she's on the prices right, <laughs> I see a nice rainbow colored cylinder like vibrator and I'm like, okay, what about that one? She's like, oh, that's a great first one. And then she shows me how to clean it and everything and I'm like okay this is good and we go to the cash register and I purchase it and I in a nondescript bag is my vibrator and the, at first I'm like this is good this is a positive thing like this is awesome and so as we're walking out of the store the girl stops us and lets us know that there's this erotica reading and that maybe we want to go and at the moment I'm like yeah, yeah, I bought a vibrator. But then as we're walking to the subway, I'm like, oh shit, I just bought a vibrator. And everybody knows, everybody on the subway knows. <laughs> and I'm about to have a panic attack because I'm like, oh shit, oh shit, everyone knows I'm a pervert. I'm not supposed to be having this. And Maria says something, and I don't think at the time she realized how important this was. She then turns to me and she's like, now you get to rock your own world, huh? And I'm like, yeah, now I get to rock my own world, okay? So when we get home, I go to my room and I place the vibrator on my nightstand. And it stays there. I wake up and it's there. I go to bed and it's there. And it stays there for about two weeks. I wasn't sure, like at first I'm like, okay, I'm gonna use it. But then I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't want them to know because what if I start using it and they hear it and they're like, oh yay, Tori's using a vibrator. <laughs> so I am so nervous. But then Maria and I go to this erotica reading. Now, despite what has happened to me, the erotica reading kind of showed Maria how innocent I really was. So it was a female-centered erotica reading and we heard stories about women having orgies and we got a live demonstration of another woman going over the, another woman's lap and being spanked while she tells a story. And then there was a story about how a woman basically had a man living between her legs. And so we get home, and Maria's like, so you have some inspiration now to use your vibrator. And I'm thinking, I guess. But then I kept on thinking about I like the idea of that story of a man living between a woman's legs. So finally, I waited until nobody was home. I made sure nobody was home. And then I was like, I'm going to use my vibrator. And at first, it was kind of like, you know, maybe I should have candles. Maybe I should have shot a playing in the background or something, set the mood. But I just 
took it out of the bag, followed the directions, turned it on, and I started thinking about the story of the man living between the woman's legs, and I started using it. And it, for the first time, I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Like, sex is awesome. <laughs> and then it's, I was like, had my first orgasm, and I was just like, wow. And then it had another orgasm. <laughs> and then I um, <laughs> And then I realized that it's not like the movies where you have an orgasm and you go to sleep. I am so energized. <laughs> I am so energized. I'm like, I can fucking run a marathon right now. I don't know what to do my, with myself. And so I just go for one more. <laughs> And the next morning, I wake up next to my vibrator. And I was kind of like, yay, Tori. <laughs> so a few weeks later, we have another dinner party. I don't get to tell my friends what has happened to me. Um, it happened a few years later. But I do tell my friends that I now have a story I can tell, like a story I can tell in public, a story that's not going to traumatize anybody else. So when I'm asked, hey, Tori, what about you? What was your first time like? I can now say that it was a bit awkward at first. I was a little nervous. It was powered by AA batteries, um, rainbow colored, and um, interchanging between three speeds. And I realized that I can have multiple orgasms and it was very consensual. Yeah. A year later, I would lose my reclaimed virginity to a guy, but then that's another risk story. Thank you. I'm standing in front of an iron door at the bottom of a dark stairwell. There's a ladle hanging on a hook right beside the door. If you were to look at this building from the outside, you'd think it was abandoned. It looks like an old factory or maybe a school. All the windows are boarded up. There's trash in the parking lot. Not a single like, ray of light is coming from the building. But I know that it's not abandoned because I can hear the screaming on the other side of the door. 
and the shouting and the swearing and the yelling and even the laughing. It is a mass of humanity on the other side of this door. And I've come here tonight to go through this door to the other side and now that I'm standing in front of it, I know that's never going to happen. That this is, it's the hardest door I'll ever have to go through and it's just not something I'm going to have the courage to do tonight. I'm here because of two guys, twins, Nock and Nam. They are guys who work in the kitchen at the McDonald's that I manage in Brockton, Massachusetts. They're identical twins. They're both five feet tall and four feet wide. They are like cinder blocks of muscle. And they cook all night for me and they swear in Vietnamese and they eat more pickles than you could imagine when I'm not looking or when they think I'm not looking. And they gamble all night long on everything and anything. They will bet hundreds of dollars between them on whether the next customer to walk in the door is a man or a woman, or whether the next musician on the Muzak is a white guy or a black guy, or whether the next burger that has ordered has cheese or not cheese. They're back there all night making a lot of noise, and I love these guys. About a month ago, we closed at midnight, and I was heading back to the office to finish the business, and as I went through the kitchen, I saw Nock and Nam, they were splayed across this prep table, and they were arm wrestling. In a way, I'd never seen people arm wrestle before. They had like this grip, and they were intense, and they were staring each other in the eye, and I asked what's going on, and they didn't answer me. And so this woman, Frances, who was watching them, she said, they're arm wrestling to see who has to do the dishes tonight because that is the worst chore in all of the restaurant. And so I watched them as they just went back and forth and finally Nam pinned Nock and they broke and they started swearing at each other in Vietnamese again and I told them to knock it off. I said, this is stupid, get to work. Like, stop being so stupid. And instantly Nam just turned from Nock to me and he said, stupid? And he put his arm down on the table and he said, arm wrestle me if you think it's stupid. Now, there was no way I was going to beat Nam. He was a block of muscle. But it was one of those moments where a guy challenges you to do something and you can't say no. And I had a little bit of a secret weapon that Nam didn't know about. I was working at the time two full-time jobs. I worked in a bank every morning, six days a week from eight to five. And then I went to McDonald's and I worked every night from six to one. I was working to save money. I was facing trial for a crime I didn't commit. $7,000 went missing in a restaurant that I was managing on the Cape and the police decided I did it. And so I was waiting my trial and I had a $25,000 legal fee to pay. And so I was working all the time. And I used to be an athlete, but I knew my body was like atrophying as I was doing all this work and nothing else. But the one thing I did to try to stay in shape was whenever I went to the bathroom, I did 50 push-ups every time, and I went to the bathroom a lot. And so I could bang out 50 push-ups like nothing. So I knew I wasn't going to beat Nam, but I thought like I could have a good showing at least. Like he, I could surprise him. And so I put my hand on the table, and he gripped my hand, and right away the grip was like iron. And Nock put his hand on top of ours, and he counted down, three, two, one, go. And in the first three seconds, I thought I was going to lose. Nam almost had me pinned, but I managed to hold it, and I managed to come back to even, and I held him there at even, and I realized two things right away. The first was, I'm never, ever going to beat Nam in an arm wrestling match. But I didn't think he was gonna beat me either. Like I foresaw that we would be here forever, for all time, we would be staring at each other. And knowing arm wrestling, there's a lot of parts to it, and one of them is strength, but one of them is just the willingness 
to hurt in order not to lose. You have to be like a special breed of asshole who wants to win at everything they do, and I am that breed of asshole. And so I just stared at him, shaking, and he was shaking. And truly, I was wondering, will this ever end when Nock slammed his hand on the table and shouted, time? And Nam let go of me, and they started shouting in Vietnamese again. But this time, they were excited. And I said, what? And they said, you're a white guy, and you can arm wrestle. And I said, all right. And they said, you don't understand. We are going to make a lot of money. Nock and Nam were competing in this underground arm wrestling league at night. I had no idea. So massive numbers of men gather in basements of abandoned buildings and they arm wrestle and they gamble. And they explain to me, I don't need to win because the way the gambling works, they gamble on 20 second increments up to a minute. And at a minute, the match is over. So if I can just hold out for 20 seconds or 40 seconds or for 60 seconds, we're going to make a lot of money because in their words, you don't look like you could ever win an arm wrestling match. (laughs) And then I tell them, I'm left-handed. I tell them I arm wrestle right-handed because everyone is right-handed, but my left arm is actually stronger. And then Nam says, we're going to make so much money. (laughs) Now, I have no intention actually of doing this. I really don't want to at all. But Nock and Nam are insistent, and they start coming back to the restaurant, even when they're not working, to practice with me. And it really is a sport. They start to teach me all the things I need to know. I'm still not doing it, but I love the fact that they're coming to the restaurant every night to work with me. About two months prior to this, my restaurant was robbed by three men. I closed the restaurant. I was at the safe counting money when three guys in masks and guns came into the restaurant. And they emptied the safe, and when they got to the bottom of the safe, they found that box that says, manager doesn't have key. And they didn't believe that I didn't have the key. And so the guys pushed my head down onto a greasy tile floor, and they put a gun to the back of my head. And they told me they were going to count back from three, and then they were going to shoot me in the head if I didn't open that box. And they counted, three, two, one, and then click. And they did that to me again, and again, and again. And ever since then, my life has been a mess. And I've hidden it from people like Nock and Nam, but I don't sleep because I have nightmares, so I just never, ever sleep. And I can't walk from room to room anymore without being terrified. I can't go from my bedroom to the kitchen for whatever reason without stealing myself with all the courage I have. And if there's a hallway that I have to walk down and turn into a room, I can't do it anymore. And God forbid there is a closed door that I have to pass through because I can't go through doors anymore. And when I come to work at night, I am terrified every night. But when Nock and Nam come and they arm wrestle with me, these two big guys, I don't feel safe, but I feel safer. And so I love the fact that they're coming and they're teaching me how to arm wrestle. And then one night they find out why I'm working so much. One of the managers tells them about my $25,000 debt. And they say, listen, you're never going to pay that off. You make nothing. But if you go with us, we will make a lot of money. And that's what convinces me to go that first night. And that's why I'm standing in front of an iron door. Behind that door, knock and nom are waiting for me. 
and all of those people are behind that door, but now I know I can't go through it. This is the worst door of all time. And I stand there, and I hope that someone's going to come down the stairs, and maybe I'll get swept up into the, in their wake and be pushed through the door, but I'm late. It's 2 a.m. because of work, and I know everything's already started. And so I stand at that door, and I think about how I'm going to turn around and I'm going to leave, and then I think about how if I leave this door, every door is going to be impossible for me. But if I get through this door, this one door, maybe the other doors won't be impossible anymore. The way I get to move is I decide I'm just going to do one thing at a time, and then if I can't do the next thing, I'll stop. And the first thing is to knock on the door, which is why that ladle is hanging on a hook. Because Nock and Nam said, if you knock on this door, no one will ever hear you. So I'm supposed to take the ladle and wrap the hell out of the door until someone can hear me. And so that's what I do. I say, I'm going to hit the door, but that's it. And so I wrap that door, and a couple seconds later, it swings open, and there's an enormous man standing in front of me, and he says, what? And I say, I'm here for Nock and Nam. And he says, oh, okay. And he steps aside. And he waits for me to pass through this threshold as if it's nothing as if it's not truly the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And so I just stand there. And he says to me finally, what? And I think it's him that gets me to make that first step, that the man waiting to go do the thing he was doing before I knocked on this door. I take one step and I wait, and I ask myself if I can take another. And then I take another, and I take another, and I am through the door, and there is a hallway that is just as impossible as this door. But slowly, with a man behind me waiting very patiently, I make it down that hallway and into a room. And I arm wrestle that night, and I don't win a single match. But I don't lose a single match either. And Nock and Nam are right. We make a lot of money. We make thousands of dollars between the three of us. And when I switch to my left hand, we make a lot of money. We never make that much money ever again. The surprise is over. There is a white man in this room who can't be beat, but will never win. (laughs) But we make a lot of money. But that is not the important thing that happens for me that night. It's irrelevant, truly. I go through a door that I never thought I could go through. And for 15 years, I don't understand what's happening to me, but for 15 years, I have post-traumatic stress disorder until I meet my wife and she tells me that waking up in the middle of the night is not a thing like tennis and stamp collecting. I should not be screaming in the middle of the night and claiming it to be a hobby and that I need to go talk to someone, and I do, and I get better. But that first step through the first doorway It lets me start living a little bit again. And truly, it makes every door I ever go through again for the rest of my life nothing compared to that one. Thank you.
to cry We got that sunny morning waiting on us now There's a light at the end of the tunnel We can be very free Just take it from me Honey child, let me tell you now, child That morning sun is here to greet us With a loving light so warm That morning sun is here to meet us gonna quit till you're smiling all let me tell you child let me tell you honey child that morning sun has come to greet you she's peeking around the corner just to win just to meet you Shining down on all your troubles Let me tell you, child Let me tell you, honey, child This is Risk. This is Melody Gardot behind me now, and we just heard from Matthew Dix. Matthew has a wonderful book called Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life through the power of storytelling. He said to me, I know that's a long subtitle. And I said, yeah, but you can do all those things with storytelling, I know. He also co-hosts a podcast called Speak Up Storytelling with his wife, Alicia. They play stories they've recorded at shows with friends, and then they critique those stories. They talk about what worked well, what could be improved. Before Matthew, we heard uh, a little something that our episode editor Jeff Barr found in homage to Tori's story about sex toys. It was a song made entirely from the sounds of vibrators and prostate toys by a band called Perlita. Now, uh, we are in California on tour right now as I'm recording this in my hotel room. And in between recording the first hosting segment... And this one, I happen to have a conversation with a guy who works in book publishing. And he said that, yes, if you can get like 200 good reviews on Amazon by September or early October, that will indeed be a super solid sign that the book has momentum and is building a future that'll help ensure that it keeps selling. So let's all get on Amazon and review it and tell your friends to do the same. Okay, now we're going to move on to the final story in today's episode. This one was recorded at the New York Risk Live show that we do once a month at Caveat in the Lower East Side. This one is by Glace Chase. Glace calls herself a trans queen performing in New York and around the world. You can check out her weekly Friday night interactive comedy show, Disgustation, at Brooklyn's Rosemont Bar, and follow her on Instagram and Facebook, at Glace Chase. Now, this story gets rough. 
There are some violent parts to it, just to let you know. So here is Glace Chase now with a story we call By Another Name. So, I was looking into his eyes, his beady, mean eyes flickering, and I just knew, I knew this man could kill me. This wasn't a game, this wasn't the movies, this was real life, this man could fucking kill me. And what the hell am I going to do now? So nine months earlier, and I just landed in London. See, I'm actually Australian, but I don't talk about it. And, <laughs> yeah, I have issues. So you wouldn't know I'm Australian, would you? Uh, and so I was 19, I was, on, I was doing my gap year, and I'd always had this fantasy about becoming, you know, an international person of mystery. And London was the first step on my journey to becoming that. And I'd grown up really rough in Australia, like very working class. My father ran a tire uh, business, so I grew up playing in tires. I was meant to take over the family business. It wasn't gonna work out. And, and of course, uh, this was not a time of loving your gender variant children, not at all. It was a lot of shame, a lot of bullying. And also too, when I was 19, I always looked very young for my age. So I actually looked 15, but I'd had a really, really rough time. So I felt like I was 25. It meant that when I arrived in London, I had a lot to prove, a lot to prove to the world and a lot to prove to myself that I had what it took, that I could be someone, that I could achieve something. And so I said to my new best friend, Sharina, with all that wisdom of youth, I said, well, I'm going to have sex anyway, so why not get paid for it? (laughs) And of course, she nodded sagely. She was also 19. And that's how I became a London rent boy. Thank you, yes. (laughs) Now, uh, in that time, this was the early 2000s, the internet wasn't what the internet was now. Instead, we had these things called gay rags, right? And at the end, at the back of every gay rag would just be all the classifieds and all the escort ads. Even though it was illegal, it didn't matter. You know, little clipping after little clipping. You know, Tony, buff Tony, 26, total top, call me. And so I was like, okay, well, this is what I got to do. I got to take out an ad. So I did my research, and so I needed a name. So I decided on Tim. (laughs) It seems, you know, perfectly passive. And, and, you know, I was going to sell on my youth. I had to decide my rate. I decided it was 70 pounds for an hour. That seemed like a good amount. And you'd call up the newspaper, and then you'd pay with your card. and, And the next week, the ad would come out. And I started getting calls pretty much straight away. Before I did that, I went to a bank. I went to the Lloyds Bank and I set up a bank account because I was working as a secretary during the day and I decided that I was gonna like save all my whore money because I knew I was destined to become a famous movie star, like absolutely destined. So when I arrived in LA, I was gonna need a real nest egg to get myself started, right? 
So the calls started coming in. Now, the first job, easy. I can barely remember it. I remember he was slightly playing. The place was slightly nice. It was like overdone. Got a 10-pound tip out the door. I was like, yes, this is so fucking easy. The next gig, this was more interesting. He was very fucking attractive. He would have been late 30s. He was like advertising kind of money and like tall, dark, handsome. And I was just like, oh, I could just fall in love with you. And then his rubbing his cock against my asshole. I can feel him trying to push it in, and I'm like, oh no, but I'm a safety girl. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't. And he's like, please, let me, please, let me. And I was like, well, maybe we're going to fall in love, and he's going to, like, save me from this hell that is prostitution. (laughs) So I let him stick it in me, and then we were done, and then I got my money, and he asked me to leave, and I learned a valuable lesson. This is business, not love. I decided to up my game, so I joined an agency, an escort agency. Now, they would charge 150, but you would keep 100. So already it was 30 quid more than I was making currently. But they insisted, you have to have a photo, you have to have photos. So we put the photos on the internet, and well, I goddamn broke that site. (laughs) Thank you. I was very popular and they loved me. I was gonna make them a lot of money and I did. And some great stories from that one was they were like, you need to go two hours out of London. He's been with a couple of our boys. He likes to be humiliated. He'll pick you up. So he picked me up in his car and I had these short leather gloves on and we're driving around Delane. And, and I was just like, pull over here. Now show me your cock. And so he pulls out this tiny little penis. And I said, you're really pathetic, aren't you? <laughs> He said, yes. I said, you want me to touch it, don't you? He's like, yes. I'm like, oh, God, I suppose I'm going to touch it. And so I was jerking him off. I was like, you like that, don't you? He's like, yes, yes, I really do, I really do. And so I pulled my hand away. And he said, why did you stop? I said, because you didn't want me to. And with that, he just came everywhere. (laughs) Fucking fabulous. Then there was, you're gonna love this one, there was another one. He was like very far outside of London too. And he was this old guy, beautiful house, beautiful house. And I was like, oh, but you're skeezy and unattractive. I do not want to do this, I don't. So I made him wear a condom. I was gonna go down on him, but I made him wear a condom. And like I was going down on him and the spermicide on the condoms makes your tongue go numb. And you're just like, oh God, why am I doing this? And he clearly felt the same. He's like, this is not gonna get me off either. Let me just look at your asshole. So I was on all fours and he was staring at my asshole and I was like, okay, I just have to go to your happy place, go somewhere else. And I was like, maybe I am actually straight. Because of like, Britney Spears is really hot in that Stronger video. And so he's like staring at my asshole, jerking off, and I'm like, cause I'm stronger than My happy place, you know? And then uh, he finished and we went downstairs and I was like, fuck, nice place. And then I saw this mantle and it had all these awards and shit. And there was one, you know, this woman holding this kind of globe that was golden. (laughs) And then there was this man, he had his arms folded. What the fuck, is that an Oscar? (laughs) I picked it up, it was so fucking heavy. It was a real fucking Oscar. This man had won an Oscar for 
I can't tell you. <laughs> I mean, I remember, but I cannot tell you because, you know, he might still be alive. He probably isn't, but still. He won an Oscar for something that was not acting, directing in the 80s. And you will know the film. You know the film. And as I was holding this Oscar, I was like, God, I am going to win one of these one day. Maybe for, like, best actor or the very least best supporting actor. God damn it. Maybe one day I'll even play James Bond. <laughs> You. And all the while, I'm depositing this money, depositing this money. And then there's this one guy. Again, he lived on the outskirts of London. He's like 6'3", big guy. We went upstairs. He's in this little kind of two-story house in a quiet kind of neighborhood. We went up the stairs, got undressed, very, very kind of casual, you know. And, you know, I kind of liked it a little bit rough. And, you know, I was almost barely present. And then punches me right in the face. What the fuck? And then that, he did it again. He's like, you like that, don't you? And I watched his eyes change. They just started to flip. They got really hard, and he got what I call dead eyes, just that there was not a man there anymore. There was just this thing. And I knew that I was in real serious shit. And I said, no, I don't like it. What are you doing? And with that, he pinned my arms down. And he said, I'm going to fucking tie you up. And I said, no, please don't. I don't want to be tied up. And he said, yes, you do. I'm going to fucking tie you up. I'm going to tie your hands behind your back. I'm going to hog tie you. And then I'm going to grab you and I'm going to throw you in the back, in the boot of the car. And then I'm going to drive fucking around. I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to drive you around London all night. I'm going to stop in sex shops. I'm going to buy a fist dildo. I'm going to use it on you while you scream and then I'm going to gag tie you and throw you back in the car and keep driving and drive around all night. Maybe you'll suffocate. I went through the Rolodex in my mind of what I could do. He was very big and I thought, okay, maybe you could make a run for it. Just run down the stairs, but maybe the door was locked. It was a bit of a rabbit warren of a house and if he got a hold of me, then I've just escalated that situation because I'd done nothing at that point. If I made him angry, well then who knows what the fuck he would have done then. And then this voice came inside of me, this, this presence, and I knew exactly what I needed to do. And so I looked at him and I said, harder. And he smiled and he punched me again. And I said, harder. He said, yeah, you fucking deserve that, don't you? I said, yes, I do. I do fucking harder. The reason I did that is not because I'm self-loathing or masochistic, though I've done that and been that plenty of times. That was not this instance. In this instance, I knew the best way to make this be over the best way to make it stop was to escalate it my way. Make him come. Just make him motherfucking come. Harder. Hit me. Yes, I deserve it. You're a fucking faggot, aren't you? You sissy. You stupid sissy bitch. And he flipped me over and he's punching at my back, punching at my back. And I'm screaming out and I'm shaking. But again, there's this sort of part above me because though I was terrified, I was sort of doing it for him too because I knew that's what it would take to get him off and as I was encourage him to hit me and punch me 
and stick his fingers inside me, eventually he did come. And I'll never forget that moment, just this little on my back, just a tiny dribble of cum. And I thought, how mediocre. <laughs> and I cleaned myself up and sort of got dressed, and his eyes were back to normal, and he kind of was a little sheepish, but not really, and gave me the money and said thank you. And I was like, okay. So I walked out the door, and yes, the streets were empty, and there was no one around, and no one would have heard me, even if I had made a run for it. And I sat on that train platform and I texted Sharina and said I'd had a really rough night. She said, come over, have some G&Ts. And I was on that train and people were coming and going. And I remember looking at this woman and she was just going about her business and my body was starting to bruise and I was feeling really sore and really shaky. And she sort of looked at me and then she looked away and I realized that nobody knew, nobody cared what had happened to me, what was going to happen. I was alone. I left London not too long after that. I stopped doing that work. And I pursued becoming an international creature of the world. <laughs> right now in London, there is a Lloyds Bank. And there would be a department, a lost and unclaimed accounts department. And there must be a file. And that file will have a name, a name that I have not used for many, many years. And that name is Richard Wheat. And in that file is a figure, and that figure is three and a half thousand pounds. And London may have forgotten, the world may have forgotten, but I have not forgotten who that person was and what that money represents. I can take care of my fucking self. Thank you. I got killed in the war 
he died and left me My brother got you killed in the war My sister, she ran off and got married Never was heard of anymore That is all for this, the 400th episode of Risk, my friends. This is Bob Dylan behind me now, and we just heard from Glace Chase. Now, I would imagine that self-defense instructors would have different advice for how to handle a situation like the one that Glace was in, but uh, that uh, is Glace's experience that she shared. You know how we're always calling for people to pitch us your stories? How, you know, if you pitch us a story and we're interested, we will help you. We will go through a process, kind of a hand-holding process with you, talking you through it, helping you shape it, helping you go into more detail. And you might be able to be on a risk show. Now, I think the time is pretty much coming to a close for our Baltimore and our Washington, D.C. shows for pitches. But hey, if you got one, send it anyway. If you're in Baltimore or D.C., because you never know, you might make it in on the wire. And then there's our Portland and Seattle and Vancouver shows. We're very much now looking for pitches from Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, and Vancouver, B.C. So send those pitches to us. You can find everything you need to know at risk-show.com submissions. There's a helpful video there. And there's even a helpful audio lecture of me talking about what makes a risk story great. So go to the submissions page on at risk-show.com. Now I'm going to read all those places we are coming next with the show and the book readings and signings at bookstores. On August 1st, we are in Queens, New York, at the Astoria Bookshop. We will be doing a book reading and book signing there August 1st at the Astoria Bookshop. On August 3rd, we'll be doing a Risk Live show in Detroit at the Magic Bag. On August 9th, we'll be in LaGrange, Illinois at Anderson's Bookshop. Anderson's Bookshop in LaGrange, Illinois on August 9th. On August 10th, we're in Chicago doing a live show at Lincoln Hall. On August 11th, we're in Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop. All new stories that have never been told on Risk before. On August 11th at Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis. On August 16th, we're in Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. That is, of course, a book reading and book signing there on August 16th in D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. On August 17th, we're in Baltimore doing a risk show at Creative Alliance. On August 18th, we're in D.C. at the Black Cat doing a risk show. On August 18th, a uh, normal uh, L.A. risk show will be happening at the Bootleg Theater. On September 6th, we'll be back in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. On September 7th, we'll be back in Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project. On September 8th, we'll be in Vancouver, B.C. at the Biltmore Cafe. And then on September 20th, 
will be at NYU Bookstore doing a book reading and book signing in New York City. Okay, that is it. Folks, don't forget that we also teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We do in-group workshops. We also do corporate workshops for big companies like Google and Pfizer and Citibank. So that is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. There's Josephine Schaefer in Germany and her boyfriend Nicholas in Shanghai, who should totally pitch his stories to us. There's Michael Finnington and Brian Juarez. There's Ranger Yoda and Alyssa Tonico. There's Gina Wentling and Brianna Calkins and the new Med Girls. There's Hill Baker and Ramsey's Castle Duke. There's Darlene and happy belated birthday to Helena Spears and Melissa Lockett. 